Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of Rooted in Revelation, where we see Revelation, our foundation in all of life. Um, our host, Nate Burns, can't be this week as he just had his first daughter, um, baby Isolda. Um, but I'm Sam Stahl, and I'm here with the amazing Justin Benj um, to talk about his new book um, on the church and the importance of the local church and really the beauty of it. Um, so, Dr. Benj, um, Dr. Benj, do you have a Yes, that's or... right, Benj. Ben. Yes. <laughs> so, if you could, um, Dr. Benj, if you could just uh, kind of introduce yourself and maybe give a brief, um, you know, testimony of how you came to faith and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Sam, for uh, having me on this afternoon. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, talk with you. Um, I'm actually coming now from the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I currently serve as. Uh, professor of Biblical Spirituality and Historical Theology, as well as uh, VP of Communications. So it's, it's quite a long title, uh, but that's, uh, that's where I am. I, my wife and I um, uh, just moved from uh, the United Kingdom. Actually, we were living in Wales uh, for the past two years. We just moved back to the States uh, at the beginning of December. So um, we are kind of uh, home, um, as it were, being both from Kentucky, uh, being both uh, growing up in Kentucky, eastern Kentucky. Uh, I grew up in a small city called London, Kentucky, um, which is southeastern Kentucky. It was quite interesting. While I was in the UK, uh, many people would ask me where I was from, and I just said London with no context at all. And uh, once they heard my accent, they knew obviously I was not from the London that they were uh, acquainted with. Uh, but I grew up in church uh, all of my life. My family was uh, very involved in church. Um, my grandfather uh, led the singing, led the worship in our uh, church. My grandmother, she taught Sunday school class. My mother played the piano. Uh, my extended family were in the church as well. So um, I grew up in that context. Um, all of my life revolved around church. Uh, but yet even having been basically born into the church, it wasn't until about 10 years old um, that I came under conviction of sin and knew that I could not go to heaven on the coattails of my family and my parents. And so uh, I professed faith in Christ at that moment, and uh, God sovereignly saved me. And um, it was not a dramatic conversion because I basically went back to doing what I, I had always done, uh, which was attending church. But yet there was this insatiable desire within me uh, to study the scriptures, to read the scriptures, um, to tell others about Christ and to share my faith with others and to serve uh, in the church that I was at, even at a very young age. Uh, the Lord called me to preach at a quite a young age, and I began at that moment preparing for vocational ministry. I knew the Lord wanted me in vocational ministry. And so I went to college, uh, did my MDiv uh, here at Southern Seminary, my PhD here at Southern Seminary. And now um, after uh, having served in various pastoral contexts, uh, the Lord led me back here, uh, for which I'm very thankful. My wife and I met um, about uh, 11, 12 years ago. We've been married almost 10 years. 
um, and she is a, a teacher uh, in the Jefferson County school system here in Louisville. Uh, she teaches first grade. So uh, again, we are very happy to be back and uh, excited uh, for what the Lord is going to do in this next chapter of our lives. Amen. Thank you so much for that. That was wonderful. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, um, you know, I don't want to say got, haven't gotten that out of the way, but having been able to talk about that, um, if we could just dive into some questions about, first of all, what, what's your new book about? What's it called? Um, for any of the listeners who may not have heard of it, um, I, you know, I know you, I would say primarily through your social media presence, which is just so edifying and, and encouraging and really, um, pithy in the way um, it summarizes key truths of the faith. But um, obviously, you're an accomplished scholar. And I just, if you could talk a little bit about your new book. Yeah, well, thank you uh, for that. Um, social media is an interesting place. And so if we can redeem our little corner of it, then um, I think that's, that's a very good thing. Um, my wife and I, we went to the UK for me to serve as uh, provost at Union School of Theology in Southern Wales, where uh, Mike Reeves is the president. Um, and uh, prior to me arriving, Union had entered into an um, agreement um, with Crossway to publish a series of four books on some of the values of the ministry of Union and where uh, Mike was serving there uh, in Wales. And so um, he published, uh, he authored the first book in the series, which is called Rejoice and Tremble on the Fear of the Lord. Uh, Dane Ortland authored the second book in the series called Deeper, uh, really about sanctification and growing deeper in our relationship with Christ. And then uh, the third book in the series, I was tasked to write, uh, which this is it, called The Loveliest Place um, on the Beauty and Glory of the Church. And then um, there is a fourth book in the series coming out this fall called The God uh, Who Shines Forth um, about evangelism and missions. Um, and uh, the spread of the gospel uh, to the nations. And so my particular book, uh, when Mike uh, very graciously, Mike Reeves, that is, asked me to write this book, um, he, he basically just said, your topic is the church. And so I thought, wow, um, that's a really simple topic. I should have no trouble at all uh, writing on the church. And I, I say that in a very uh, facetious way because it's such a large topic. Um, and there's so many great books on the church. I thought, what can I contribute? How can I contribute? Can I contribute in any kind of new way uh, that will lend uh, to the conversation about the church? And so um, in, in my studies uh, among uh, church history, I teach church history as well as historical theology, um, there, there were many times that I came across uh, various phrases uh, within the writings of Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards, as well as others, um, John Gill, uh, for instance, an 18th century Baptist um, uh, in um, the United Kingdom. What can I say about the church that is different? And among all these writings, what I found very common was that they talked about the beauty of the church, something uh, quite beautiful, something quite lovely. Charles Spurgeon even called it the dearest place on earth. And so I thought, well, there's something there to explore. 
And so that's what I set out to do uh, within the loveliest place. Um, it, the book is composed of um, 14 chapters and, and an epilogue and an introduction to kind of bookend those 14 chapters. I start out with a very Trinitarian view of the church and then go into some more practical stuff looking at her beauty and glory. And so um, that's what it is. Uh, the official launch of the book is actually uh, tomorrow. That's when the book is released, uh, though it is available now on Crossway's website and a couple other websites. Um, so I'm looking very forward to its uh, final uh, release, and I do pray that it's uh, very encouraging uh, for the church at large. Amen. That's fantastic. Um, thank you for that. So a um, couple different kind of questions I had um, in mind to ask you. Um, first of all, I mean, I mean, I guess we could think on either a practical level, but also kind of a theoretical, like, aesthetics level. So I'll talk about the practical level first. Um, why is the local church so important? I mean, I think there's, you know, this tendency, especially in contemporary evangelicalism to, I don't know, sometimes undervalue the local body of believers and this idea that you can kind of go alone or, you know, sort of just be your own little isolated Christian as opposed to a member of the body of believers. So what, what's so important about the local church? Well, um, I think um, that that's a good question. Uh, perhaps uh, to frame it in a way that can help our minds um, shift really from our own perspective to a much broader perspective. Um, I don't believe there's any more robust foundation upon which we can build a definition of the church than the eternal work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's really impossible, Sam, to view the church except through a Trinitarian lens. Mm -hmm. And if we do not view the church through that Trinitarian lens, she loses her importance. But when we view the church through that Trinitarian lens, we see exactly why the church is important and why we as believers should give and be given to her and to her service. And this is because the church belongs to God. And so that, that's really the simple answer to that question. Why is the local church so important? Well, it's because she belongs to God. That is, the church is his treasure and consists of his children and his friends. And to define the church as merely an earthly institution is to completely and fully miss who the church is in God's eternal mind and heart. And the church's beauty only comes into clear focus when we behold or we view her through the lens of God's relationship with her. And if I could just unpack that for a moment, the church was never the plan B in the mind of God. That is, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden in Genesis 3 and introduced sin into the perfection of God's creation, the church was still, even in that moment, the trajectory of God's redemptive plan. That is, God in eternity past chose to set his love upon the church 
through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then through his son became the father and friend of the church. And so that's kind of part one to this question. Why is the church important? Well, because the church belongs to God. Now, it's Christ who brings the Father near to us through his incarnate work in his virgin birth, in his sinless life, substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, his glorious resurrection, triumphant ascension, and his present intercession, thus making Christ our Savior and our head. Why is the church important? Well, because Christ died for the church. Christ purchased the church with his own blood, and through that sacrifice became her head. And then when Jesus ascended back to the Father, he said, I will send you a helper. And we know that helper as the third person of the divine trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit, who becomes our helper and our beautifier. Why is the church important? Because the Holy Spirit fills her, helps, guides, calls, aids, teaches, sanctifies, matures, intercedes for the church even. So you see, the church receives the full attention of the beautifying and eternal work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a father and friend. We have a savior and head. We have a helper and a beautifier. This is why the church is so important, because the triune God says that she is important. And so that's why I believe the church Amen. is important. That's beautiful. Thank, thank you for that. That was really, really something. Um, something that, that occurred to me just as you were speaking, um, kind of in passing, when you, when you talk about the Trinitarian implications of the church, do you think there's anything um, to the idea of like the church as modeling or imitating like relationships within the Trinity in some sense? I don't, I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? Like in the sense Yes, that, like, well, absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the preeminent examples of that is Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17. When he's praying in the latter part of that prayer, Jesus says, he's praying for our unity, and he even says, Father, let they be unified as we are unified. Right. In order that they might shine forth and basically validate the gospel message that they profess to proclaim. And so, in other words, Jesus is praying, let the church's unity mirror the unity, Father, Jesus is saying, that I shared with you even from before the foundation of the earth. And so, the inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and Son and their unified love with one another, we too are to mirror that in our relationships with one another and our relationships both vertically and horizontally. And so, yes, that inner Trinitarian relationship is to be mirrored within the church. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so I alluded um, a minute ago to this kind of low ecclesiology that would, you know, kind of tends to undervalue the church, mm. which, as you've said, kind of a, a major mistake. What do you think, I mean, I mean, 
in a historical theological perspective, do you think there's are root causes to that, or do you think there are reasons for that kind of decline in, you know, I, I won't say contemporary theology, but maybe popular theology? Yeah, well, that's a good question, too. Um, I mean, perhaps we could survey church history and look at some of those reasons that um, ecclesiology has been downgraded, if you will. Uh, but in short, I think the more we concentrate on form, methodology, structure, organization, and programs even, at the expense of the church's beauty and loveliness, our ecclesiology is downgraded. Um, I told someone the other day that instead of viewing the church as a living organism that is the bride and body of Christ, we've started viewing the church as an organization that is nothing more than a neighborhood civic club. And so there's a difference between viewing the church as a living organism, a bride and a body, and an organization that is merely on earth to fulfill everyone's felt needs. And I really believe this is why we have a low ecclesiology. We've moved away from the word of God, we've moved away from doctrine, and we've moved from a biblical definition of the church. And I want readers to finish this book with an awakened affection for the church, not an affection for form and methodology, but a for, an affection for who the church is in the mind and heart of God. I want readers to begin to see the church as lovely and beautiful as Christ does, and I want readers to give and be given in the service of the church that she may be presented to Christ one day without spot or wrinkle. And back to that first question, or back to that first answer that I give, when we view the church through this Trinitarian lens, we can't have a low ecclesiology. And so we have moved and shifted our perspective, and that's why I think we're experiencing what we do today. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, on that note, are you, I don't know, this might be getting into eschatology, I guess, but are you fundamentally <laughs> optimistic or pessimistic about, um, you know, the state of the church in the West, in the West, at least? Not yeah, well, that, that's an interesting, but. yeah, that, that's an interesting question because it depends on, again, what lens that I'm looking through, which will determine if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. If I look through the lens of man, I'm very pessimistic. Uh, division, infighting, abuse being unveiled within the church, cliques and camps springing up, doctrinal division, worship wars, ideological wars, methodological wars, etc. And we could go on and on. If you merely look through that lens, we don't have to wonder why there are so many people leaving the church and exiting the church. If you look through that lens, we become very discouraged. We become very disillusioned to the local church, and people leave in droves and become very disillusioned with uh, the current state of the church. However, what I'm trying to do in this book is to cause people to shift their perspective 
from sometimes our puny self-interest, which fuels that disgruntlement, to a Trinitarian perspective, a biblical perspective, which is more than optimistic. In fact, Jesus said, I will build my church and hell itself will not stop me. Not that perhaps we could replace that. I will build my church and Twitter itself will not stop me (laughs) or social media will not stop me. Wars will not stop me. Methodologies and ideologies will not stop me. So everything that hell would throw against the church, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, period. And the church will be presented to Christ at the end without spot or wrinkle. And Sam, because we have scripture, we know the end of the story. And the church will be washed and made ready as the perfect bride of Christ, having been washed in his redeeming blood. And so back to the question, we need to get our act together. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one, as I've already mentioned, and that we would validate the word that is going forth from us. In other words, the witness of the church to the world validates the gospel of Christ, and we aren't doing a very good job right now of validating that gospel. But just in short, overall, I'm optimistic because Christ has promised to build his church. And I'm just crazy enough to believe that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. But when I look at the current state of the church, I'm pessimistic because we have a lot of work to do. That's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, Yeah, I feel like I don't know. I, I've actually been thinking about um, that verse lately because this, this might be a slight tangent, but I know you you do historical theology and stuff. So mm. I, this is something that's on my mind a lot. Is um, do you um have you done any work with um like continuity of doctrine over the past two thousand years in the sense of um stuff like justification and um kind of how clearly the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the history of the Western church. Um, I, I don't know if that's something you've, you've done work in at all, or um, yeah, that's just something um, that... Un- unpack that a little bit for me um, in regard to what, what perhaps you're, you're asking. Yeah, so basically in a sense of, you know, um, sola fide justification being the, you know, articulum santus accidentus ecclesiae, the article by which the church stands and falls. Mm. Um, and like, you know, I mean, just from my perspective, there are periods in church history when that doctrine has been eclipsed. So how, how without necessarily getting into kind of like a successionist or landmarkist view, how do you mm. maintain Christ's promise in the face of that? If, if that makes sense? Yes. No, no, it does make sense. I mean, we could go back to the Reformation and Luther himself um you know, said the doctrine of justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. And that was because he was coming out of a period within the church's history, a very long period, even prior to his birth, a very long period of just darkness, just complete Mm -hmm. eclipsing of the gospel message. Um, Is that message being eclipsed today? Well, perhaps in some circles it is. Um, I think we have a very sometimes small perspective in that we believe that Christ 
that God is only doing things um, in the West, mm. but in fact, sure. God is doing amazing things in the East at the moment, uh, in um, many countries in Asia, um, many countries um, in Africa. Um, I did not realize until the war broke out with Ukraine uh, just a few days ago that uh, there are more Baptists in Ukraine than just about any place in Europe. And so there are major pockets of evangelicals uh, within Ukraine, and this war is going to just decimate um, a lot of that movement. But regardless of the movements, Christ shows that he always has a remnant doesn't he? And that is the example of scripture, mm. regardless of the darkness that may be prevailing in whatever time God has a remnant of believers and he is working, he is saving, he is sanctifying, and he is growing people. So regardless of what may be going on in the church today within the United States and in our own context, we can be assured that God is doing amazing things throughout his invisible church within all parts of the world. That's a great answer. Thank you. That's very encouraging. Um, yeah, absolutely. So to get back to the, the beauty aspect, um, you wrote in the book um, that the church is more beautiful than any composition of man. Um, what kind of implications do you think that has for something else that's kind of dear to my heart, which is the Christian theology of aesthetics? Mm. Um, in terms of how, how should the beauty of the church structure yeah, so kind of at the beginning of the book, I look at um, the words of um, Song of Songs, uh, Song of Solomon, uh, chapter one, um, particularly looking at various texts throughout Song of Solomon. Um, John Gill, the 18th century Baptist theologian, pastor, um, he interpreted the Song of Solomon as an intense allegorical portrayal of the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, there are many commentators throughout church history that do just that. In Song of Solomon chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, the bridegroom employs rich creation language to distinguish the beauty and loveliness of his bride. Now, it's not quite how we might describe the attention of our love, uh, because in the ancient world, uh, immediately they would have recognized this beauty. Leaping goats, freshly washed ewes, uh, ruby red pomegranates, shielded stone towers, lilies of the field, leaping gazelles, rare spices dripping from the mountains. In other words, this bride is arrayed in the cloak of God's creation. Mm -hmm. And I say in the book that this bride is more beautiful than any composition of man. I think I list maybe things like the Mona Lisa or the Riviera at sunset or some city skyline or the Grand Canyon or whatever. In other words, the bride resembles all that God said was good and perfect in his creation. She is Christ's delight, having been redeemed and washed in his blood, sanctified by his spirit, and he now calls her, he now calls us, my love. Mm -hmm. But at this point, it's necessary to clarify, 
that the beauty of the church is not a type of romantic or inherently attractive beauty that would cause us to blush. In other words, the church would never adorn the cover of a magazine because she is beautiful. Because the beauty of the church is the reflection of another, God. I'm not talking about beautiful church buildings or soaring cathedrals, but I'm talking about the perfect beauty of God reflected through Christ and thus reflected to the church. There's something here in the Song of Solomon that should cause us to wake up to the reality of beauty. Uh, we live in a world that has turned away in many aspects. And if you're interested in this subject, I know you would agree with what I'm saying here. They've turned away from prizing beauty and settled for something plastic and fake, some substitute of man. David said in Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing I have asked for, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, what's interesting is Isaiah, the prophet, picks up on this language as well and foretells of a day uh, eschatologically, when the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to his people. And so to come face to face with God's transcendent beauty is to ascend to the peak of our deepest longing and the fulfillment of our greatest desires. And so when I say the church is beautiful, I'm not saying that we inherently have anything within us that is beautiful because we are sinners. We are ugly. We are depraved. But what I'm saying is we are made beautiful, having been washed in the redeeming blood of the lamb. And because we have been made beautiful, we are mirror image reflections of the same beauty that David ascribes to the Lord. We are the mirror reflection of the beauty of God. And so as the mirror reflection of God through Christ, washed and beautified by the Holy Spirit, then yes, that absolutely has something to do with our understanding of aesthetics because all true beauty flows from the excellency of God the Father himself. Amen. Amen. That's, yeah, that's awesome. Um, kind of on, on that related note, and we're, we're starting to wrap up here, but um, how, I guess this is a more practical question versus a theoretical question I just asked. Do you have any advice for viewing the local church as beautiful because i think there's like, like you said it's not necessarily a sensory beauty in this you know we live hmm. sight in the sense that it's not something that's going to be fully apparent until glory so in, in the here and now how do we you know besides like i mean i don't want to say besides the means of grace but like including the means of grace and fellowship what are what are some kind of strategies to access that beauty and really key ourselves into it as opposed to more, maybe more worldly standards. 
Yeah, well, very practically, I think this looks like a lot of different things. Um, after kind of that Trinitarian presentation, I go into uh, the word um, that is scripture being the church's pillar and buttress of the truth. I look at worship. I look at um, um, godly leaders within the church, uh, mm-hmm. both elders and as well as deacons. I look at um, the ordinances of, of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I look at persecution, the way um, that God makes the church beautiful and beautifies his bride. I look at unity as the unveiling of the beauty of Christ um, and the beauty of the gospel, thus being the beauty of the church. And so those are various ways um, that uh, the church becomes beautiful. So how do we see the church as beautiful? Well, we have to adhere as closely as possible to the scriptural instructions on what the church should be and do, how she should serve, what she should look like in a broken world, how she should compose herself, how she should be organized, what her worship looks like, what her service looks like. And the closer we are to conformity with what scripture has so clearly laid out, the more beautiful the church is. And so what makes the church beautiful? How can we be a part of that beauty? Well, we have to immerse ourselves in scripture and we have to obey the commands of scripture and the injunctions of scripture, thereby bringing our little pieces of beauty into that fellowship to collectively be beautiful. So if God has called you to serve in the nursery and change dirty diapers and God has called you to do that, then that is absolutely beautiful in the sight of God, and that helps to beautify the church. If God has called you to pastor a church and to exposit the scripture Sunday after Sunday, then that contributes to the beauty of Christ's bride. If God calls you to to, to take a meal to someone or to serve in a Sunday school class or to be a deacon or to serve in the youth or to serve in fellowship or to love uh, your neighbor or to love um, somebody who's sitting close by you in a pew and contribute in some way and, and you are obeying the injunctions of scripture, then you can palpably see the beauty of the church because the closer we get to Christ, the more beautiful we become and the more glorious we become in his sight and the stronger our message is and our gospel witness is to the world. That's absolutely true. Thank you. That is, yeah, no, that's really wonderful. Um, I don't know, um, Dr. Benj, it's been kind of a, a short episode, but that's probably on me more than anything else. But I mean, <laughs> No, that's absolutely fine. Uh, yeah. Sam, thank you for um, asking well, these well, questions. And it's my really sincere hope that uh, uh, people who are interested in the church uh, would be encouraged. I think this, these past couple of years um, with lockdowns and coronavirus and ideological wars and all of the rest that has arisen, we need a fresh understanding of the church. And um, it, it's not my understanding of the church that I'm wanting to sell here. That, that's not at all. Um, but I'm just wanting to be some sort of conduit through which that God would point us back to the scriptures uh, to understand what he has said about the bride of Christ. And so thank you uh, for this uh, few, few moments that we've spent together in discussing these uh, wonderful things. Thank you. 
Thank you, Dr. Renz. Um, and thank you all for listening. Um, this has been Rooted in Revelation, and Nate will be back very soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.